It's like hanging out at Disney Springs, which is basically a glorified outdoor shopping mall when you have an all-access pass to every park in the Magic Kingdom. Do you see his glory? Hey, Cross United, I'm so glad you've joined us for this online message. We're going to be in John 12, 12 through 19. While you're turning or tapping over to that passage, let me just remind you that you can connect with us online at crossunited.org. And on crossunited.org, you will see a tab that says online check-in. If you will click that, it'll take you to a digital connection card where we can get to know you a little bit better and you can share prayer requests. We'd love to know how we can be praying for you and we would love to connect with you. Also there in the website on the top right-hand side of the menu bar is a tab that says give. If you consider Cross United your church home or you just consider yourself a generous person, um, we encourage you to give to our church and through our church. When, when I was uh, a number of years commuting from Northeast Broward County here uh, in the Lighthouse Point, Deerfield, Pompano area, to South Broward County, just north of Hard Rock Stadium, I learned to navigate I-95. And uh, my mom, when I was a kid, taught me not to say that I hate things. Um, she said, hate is a very strong word. You should say, I don't care for it. Well, I will have to tell you that I don't care for I-95. I didn't really enjoy, you know, fighting bumper to bumper traffic and the, the sudden slowdowns and the construction lanes like swerving all over the place. But one of the bright spots of that 45 minute commute each way was I got to listen to a lot of audiobooks and I got to listen to a lot of biographies. I love biographies. And at one point in that season, I listened to like four or five or more biographies of President Theodore Roosevelt, of Teddy Roosevelt. And, and I, I, I got to hear his story from a variety um, of different angles. And, and, and in that, I, I discovered something or rediscovered something that, that I already knew and you might know and probably know as well. And that is every person tells a story from a slightly different perspective. Every person tells a story from a slightly different perspective. And so multiple biographies of the same person, especially if they're a, an important person, can really help to get a full picture of who that person was. Well, that's what we see in scripture. And, and that's what we see in the beginning of the New Testament. We see four biographies of Jesus, people uh, who told his story from unique perspectives, four slightly different perspectives. The life of Christ, the good news, or, or as it's called, the gospel, is narrated in, the, in these biographical portraits by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, and they, they, they give us when you, a sort of panoramic view of who Jesus was and who Jesus is. And, and the first three of those gospels are called synoptic gospels because they, they tell a relatively similar story. They, they see the same way, basically. Sin meaning with or together, and optic meaning to see. They see together. They're, they're basically standing from a similar point of reference. 
John, though, John is is a little bit different. He kind of tells the story of Jesus from an adjacent angle. He he gives us insight into Jesus's heart, words, and actions that the other gospel biographers don't give us. Um, he tells stories the other biographers don't tell. Uh, he tells the story of Jesus raising Lazarus, and he pulls back the curtain on the triune life of God and, and the Word, the eternal Word who was with God and was God, John 1.1. 1, 1. Um, unlike the other gospel biographers, he complements their narrative by, by giving this, this picture of Jesus that starts further back and, and get, gets a little deeper into the divine life of Christ. And, and we shouldn't worry about this. John himself says the very end of his gospel that, that if all the things Jesus had done and said were would have been written down, that th- he says the world itself wouldn't contain the books that would be written. And the four biographies of Jesus give us uh, a picture, a full picture of who Jesus is. And there are a number of stories that occur in one, two, three of the gospel accounts. And there are uh, a few that occur in all four gospel accounts. And one of those is the story we're going to talk about this morning, what is historically traditionally been called the triumphal entry story or narrative, that Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And, when, and what's interesting, when you, when you put together um, John's account of the story of the entry of Jesus on the donkey into Jerusalem, alongside the other three synoptic gospels, you see that John tells the same story, but he adds in some information and some details that the other writers don't give us. And what John is is showing us in his own unique perspective, you see, John, John had had, you know, 60 years to reflect on his, his, life and and walk with his friend Jesus on earth and then his ministry of the gospel of Jesus after Jesus had ascended into heaven and he had walked with Jesus as a very young man and now he's preaching and writing about Jesus as a very old man and, and he's thinking about these things and he sees he sees this story through the events of the cross and the resurrection and he sees that this event though it seemingly exalted Jesus um, as king, as they praised Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that this was merely a foreshadowing of his true glory. And for John, the true glory of Christ is seen in the hour of his crucifixion and the vindication of his resurrection. Um, remember, John, he's telling the story in the, the gospel of John, and he's he's slowing his pace down here in chapter 12. He started in chapters 1 through 11, telling the story of really from eternity in chapter 1 and the word, the word before time with the Father, and then telling a story of multiple years through the first 11 chapters, what some scholars have called the book of signs, because he does these six signs that show who he is and what he came to do. And now John is slowing the narrative down where the first 11 chapters took multiple years and the last eight chapters take just uh, days and, 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 and a short amount of time in the life of Jesus. And he slows the narrative down to really focus in on the most important 
part of the story. And this passage, this story this morning, is the entryway into this part of the story. And in the first movement of the story, we see that John is inviting us um, and, and to wake up and to smell the glory of Christ and to realize and remember the glory of Christ the King. And, and he starts the story off here, the first, the first section in verses 12 through 25, and he reminds us to crown the long-promised King. The next day, and um, scholars note, that indicates the pivot to a new part of the narrative in John's gospel. When the large crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. They kept shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. The, the crowds had gathered for this Passover festival, and, and there may have been multiple millions of people there. Hundreds of thousands of people would have been there to celebrate what God had done so long before in delivering his people from Egypt. And, and as he approaches the festival, Jesus's fame has once again preceded him. And, and the crowds had heard of his wonder-working power, specifically of him raising Lazarus from the dead. They take these palm branches to sing his praise and to celebrate who he was. Um, palm branches would have been easy to find in that, that culture and that time. Just like here in South Florida, it'd be pretty easy to find some palm branches. Um, and, and they were used at the Feast of Tabernacles to celebrate God. Um, but, but only John, of the four stories of this, this, this story, the four Gospels, only John notes that the branches were palm branches. And that's interesting because John also wrote the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And look what he says in 7, 9 through 10 in Revelation. After this, I looked and there was a vast multitude from every tribe, nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. So these palm branches were a, were a sign for John of the eternal praise of the eternal God in heaven. Palm branches had a political significance as well in, in Jewish culture in that day. The, the, there was a group of people called the Maccabees who um, had taken over um, the Jewish leadership and, and, and had, that's why so the celebration of Hanukkah is the, the celebration of the, the victory of the Maccabean revolt. And Simon the Maccabee, he, he drove out the forces of the Syrian armies out of Jerusalem and the people celebrated with music and palm branches. Um, and that was in 141 BC. So, you know, about a hundred years before, uh, 150 to 200 years before Jesus's life and this moment in Jesus's life in the, the temple rededication, which had happened about 20 years before uh, this, this moment in, uh, in the life of the Maccabean leaders, they had rededicated the temple and this is the celebration of Hanukkah and they had used palm branches and the palm branch was used on the coins in, in Jewish and Judean uh, currency. 
So, so the palm branch had a very, and the palm palm leaves had a very significant meaning. And so when they took these palm branches, they were praising Jesus as a delivering king. And what they say here is the words of Psalm 118, verses 24 and 25. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, Psalm 118 is part of the Hallel Psalms, that, that, and, and these Psalms that would have been praising the name of Yahweh the Lord, and, and specifically here in Psalm 118, this Psalm is framed by the praise of God the Lord Yahweh for his goodness demonstrated in his covenant faithfulness and his unfailing covenant love to deliver his people from death. Better than human deliverers who triumphs over his enemies and open wide the gates uh, wide the gates of the righteous. And it's like 29 verses, so we won't read uh, the whole psalm. And we get to this point near the end of the psalm where it says, Hosanna, which is a, a, a Hebrew word, uh, two Hebrew words transliterated, which may mean save us. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of of the Lord. And so this one who had come in the name of the Lord, but hadn't just come as a delegate of the Lord and as a delegate of Yahweh, but was himself in fact Yahweh in the flesh, as John has already told us over and over and over again through this gospel. What's interesting, the crowds add a phrase here, the king of Israel. And what they're doing is they're confirming what we've already seen on the lips of one of Jesus's early disciples. John 149, Nathaniel says, Rabbi, Nathaniel replied, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Now we see here, we note, John notes that Jesus found a donkey. Um, and he he fulfills here another prophecy of the Messiah from Zechariah 9, verse 9, where it says that the, the king would be coming, sitting on a donkey's colt, as John quotes it here. The, the, this verse follows the word of the Lord in Zechariah 9, 1 through 8, of, of, of his judgment against the enemies of his people. And in contrast to Yahweh's judgment of these wicked nations, the Lord, Yahweh, he will save his people. And Israel should not be afraid because, because Israel is the beloved daughter, the child of the Lord, whose king will come on a donkey. Now, some have said that the donkey indicates the humility of Christ. But actually, if you look, studies have shown that a donkey would have been interpreted more likely as a royal symbol. One writer says that the donkey was the Mercedes-Benz of the biblical world. Um, so, so when it says in, for example, chapter 9, verse 10 of Zechariah, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The bow of war, the bow of war will be removed and he will proclaim peace to the nations. His dominion will extend from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. We see that Jesus, the Messianic King, comes in on this donkey to bring peace through judgment that he's going to judge the enemies of God to bring peace to the people of God. And he is the king. And the people are expecting a messianic revolt. They're expecting a Maccabean-style revolt. They're expecting him to bring liberation of 
the people and the, the land, the, the place and the nation from Roman rule. Like, like we said, though, John, John tells the story a little bit differently than the other, other gospel writers, and he gives the narrative itself here um, less than half the space of the other gospels. The other gospels accounts are 11, 12 verses. John gives five verses, and then he adds a few comments that really open up uh, his perspective on the story and on who Jesus is and what this story means. And he's inviting us here in the second movement of this part of the text to wake up and see the glory. Wake up and see the glory. His disciples did not understand these things at first, verse 16. However, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Meanwhile, the crowd which had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify. This is also why the crowd met him, because they heard he had done this sign. Then the Pharisees said to one another, You see, you've accomplished nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. We don't know why. Well, we I guess we kind of know why, but, but th th this would have been a, a, a tremendously chaotic moment in the life of the disciples as they enter this, this sprawling crowd of Jerusalem and, and they see this happening and the, their, 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 their teacher, their rabbi entering on, on, on this donkey and the, the, maybe they think he's going to bring the messianic kingdom. They're, they're not quite sure, but we know for sure they didn't understand the significance of this moment and that Jesus was indeed a king, but he was a king different than they expected. He was a king who would be enthroned, not on a, not on a, a chair, but on a cross and who would be vindicated through his resurrection. In John's story, it's when it says here that they remembered after Jesus had been glorified, we see that in John, the, the, the moment of Jesus's glory is the moment of his crucifixion followed by his resurrection. Look at verse 12, 23. Jesus replied to them, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. The purposes of God often, often work this way, don't they? Inside out, upside down, backward, forward. Christ radiates his eternal glory, literally in the literally excruciating pain of the cross, which revealed his glory, followed by the resurrection, which vindicated his glory. John also explains, unique among the gospel biographers, um, that the crowd had gathered because of Lazarus's resurrection. We've talked about throughout this study how Lazarus's resurrection was the sixth sign of the book of signs, and it was the sixth sign because the seventh sign, the, the, the sign of completion or fullness, was itself the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, and it was the, the ultimate foreshadowing of what Jesus was going to do. He was going to die for the sins of the world and then be raised to new uncorruptible life. Yahweh's name, as they, they, they praise the name of, of, of Jesus, they're praising the name of Yahweh himself. And as John had reflected on the story and remembered what happened with Lazarus, and he realized 
the kingship of Christ revealed in the cross and vindicated in the resurrection. The king trundled into town on a donkey under the shadow of palm branches, but more ultimately under the shadow of a cross and toward the light of an emptied tomb. The Pharisees fret and they're stressed and they say that, that our plot to, to, to contain him, to execute him, to, bet to betray him isn't working. And they say here, the world has gone after him. And they're like Caiaphas earlier in the narrative who says, you know, it's better that one man should die for the people. Like Caiaphas spoke more truly than he knew. These Pharisees speak more truly than they know because indeed John tells us again in the passage we just saw that from every tribe and tongue and family and nation, Christ will gather himself a people. The world will go after him, even though they're speaking in exaggerated hyperbolic terms here, that they actually were saying something more truly than they knew. Christ will gather the world to himself. There was a newspaper columnist named Epi Letterer um, who wrote columns for 50 years. Um, you may not have heard her name because in outlets across the nation, she used a pen name, where she offered advice to people on a range of issues. In the Ann Landers columns, maybe you've heard that name, maybe you haven't. But Ann Landers would offer advice to people, and one of her favorite expressions was, wake up and smell the coffee. It's a way to just, like, get in touch with reality. And it brings to mind, the, you know, shuffling to the kitchen on a dim early morning with your hair sort of poofed up to one side, your eyes like squinting, partially closed, and you set the brewer, brewer and you hear the, the comforting noise of the, of the brewing doing its thing, and the churl and the heating of the dripping water, and you pour your cup and you hold it to your nose, and you're getting ready for your day. Wake up and smell the coffee it means pay attention to what's right in front of you. Look around, get real, return to reality. The crowds and the disciples, they didn't realize just how glorious Christ was and Christ is. That his kingdom was not a small strip of land on the eastern shore of the Mediterranean Sea. His glorious kingdom wasn't even the sprawl of the empire centered in the Italian peninsula in Rome. His kingdom is a cosmic kingdom which he left in heaven to bring to earth. Augustine said that the Son of God is equal to the Father. He is the word through whom all things were made. The fact that he wanted to be king of Israel is a condescension, not an advancement. It is an indication of pity, not an increase of power. For he who was called king of the Jews on earth is Lord of angels in heaven. Do you see his glory? When I was in college, there was a Christian song that came out by Stephen Curtis Chapman called See the Glory. And it's a song that resonates with me to this day. And the chorus of the song says, When it comes to the grace of God, sometimes it's like I'm playing Game Boy standing in the middle of the Grand Canyon. Uh, kids, a Game Boy was an old-fashioned video game device that we had before smartphones. 
playing Game Boy standing in the middle of the Grand Canyon. I'm eating candy sitting at a gourmet feast. I'm wading in a puddle when I could be swimming in the ocean. Tell me what's the deal with me. Wake up and see the glory. And he's alluding there to that Ann Landers phrase, wake up and smell the coffee, wake up and see the glory, return to reality. And here he's drawing from a famous essay that maybe you've heard from C.S. Lewis called The Weight of Glory. Lewis said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with sex and drink and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Us Floridian folks might understand it this way. It's like hanging out at Disney Springs, which is basically a glorified outdoor shopping mall, when you have an all-access pass to every park in the Magic Kingdom. Do you see his glory? Wake up and see the glory of Christ. Thank you.